Greetings, podcast listeners. David here. Wanted to take a moment before the show starts to give you an update. The pieces are slowly falling into place, but it's taking a little longer than I anticipated. Uh, we're working hard to get this show back on something closer to a regular schedule, but we've had some ongoing technical problems with our equipment, particularly some hellacious radio frequency interference from a large, world-famous skyscraper nearby, which will remain unnamed, partly because whichever of the two names I might choose to call it, the historic one or the current one, that would get folks writing me angry letters about using the wrong name. Anyway, the good news is that slowly but surely, we're getting the glitches fixed. In the meantime, lots of neat things to tell you about. First of all, for the past several months, I've been producing a television documentary for the PBS station here in Chicago, Channel 11, and it's going to be on the air April 3rd at 9 p.m., and it's really good. If you don't live here in Chicago, don't worry. We'll have it online as well and available worldwide for everybody to see, and I'll get you more details and the website as we get near to the air date. We're also welcoming some new staff to the show. Over the next few weeks, we'll have some audio from new producers here in Chicago and from New York City. I'm really excited about this. Finally, we're including some audio today from the folks at the UK podcast, Things Unseen. Longtime listeners will remember me announcing that we'd be doing some crossovers, and here we are, crossing over. If you're listening to this, thank you. We started this show on a shoestring with few listeners. But each month I see our audience grow and grow and grow. We're still learning how to do this, and we always welcome your comments, your suggestions, and your show ideas. If you're listening, always feel free to let us know. And even more important, feel free to let somebody else know. You are our PR department. All of this is free, and we want it easy to share. Tweet us, blog us, reuse our content, Help us in our campaign to let the world know that the phrase good conversations about religion is not an oxymoron. We mean it. Thank you. And with that, let's start the show. From the studios of WETN on the campus of Wheaton College, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. today's show, we continue our series of interviews from the Wheaton College Conference on the Bible and Democracy in America, presented by the American Bible Society, when we talk with Wheaton College political science professor Amy Black. Later on the broadcast, we feature a piece produced by the staff of the Things Unseen podcast in the United Kingdom. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're doing a special series of interviews from the uh, Bible and Democracy in America conference here at Wheaton College. And I'm very pleased today to have as our guest uh, Professor Amy E. Black. She's Associate Professor of Political Science in the Department of Politics and International Relations here at Wheaton College. And she earned her Ph.D. in political science at MIT in uh, and she served as an American Political Science Association Congressional Fellow working in the office of Representative Melissa A. Hart uh, prior to uh, coming to 
uh, Wheaton College. And so with that, Dr. Black, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Now, clearly in 1980 and moving through the 1990s, um, the evangelical vote was a key voting block for certainly for the Republican Party. And the, yes. the Democrats never did a good job of, of recapturing that. And that's that's part of, of the key to the sort of landslides that Reagan and others were able to get. At the same time, there was, uh, if I'm if I'm correct, an evangelical dissatisfaction because they kept electing these people who then would not deliver on their their political desires. It's important to note that that, as you mentioned, recapturing, and that's an important phrase, and I think a lot of people missed that in our fairly recent history. 1976, Time magazine called the Year of the Evangelical, and they were talking about evangelicals getting involved in politics, and they were supporting Jimmy Carter. Very strong support for Carter and the Democratic Party coming from self-described white evangelicals. And they became, at least particularly at the elite level, disaffected with Carter in office, turned to Ronald Reagan in 1980, and then we see the rise of what we call the Christian right. Very much a sense of, by the time we're at the end of the 80s, a very strong connection between Republican voting and evangelical identity, which remains quite strong to this day. It's not as strong as it was in the 80s, but it's still the case that evangelicals are voting anywhere from 70 to 75 percent in favor of Republican presidential candidates. Now, you, you said that that's not as strong as it was today. Is is that a result of the, and since you've looked at the data, maybe you can speak to this, is that a result of the sort of aging of that block? Or as as those evangelicals get older, are they being replaced in the younger ranks Sort of what is what is, what is the development of that as a, as sure. a vote, voting block? And it the numbers are down a little bit, but not it's it's not as if we've gone from seventy seven percent to fifty percent. So it's gone from sort of in that seventy five to eighty percent to more like seventy percent. I don't have the numbers in front of me, so it's gone down some. There's a lot of talk in the media as if there's this fundamental shift and the data just don't support that. But there is less of basically what we see from the data is there is still a very large voting block in the Republican Party of white evangelicals. It is a core voting block for the party. It's not as large a voting block as it once was, but it is still a supermajority. But we are seeing changes. So to get to your question, it's a little bit of both. Some of it is the aging of the group. Um, Evangelicals as a group are Older, as opposed to younger, we're seeing sort of what we call those cohort effects. And so evangelicals aren't changing their views. They're just getting older overall. At the same time, we're seeing some interesting but sometimes counter indicators among younger evangelicals. So among younger evangelicals, what we see is both a change in the kinds of issues that they're interested in. So unlike older evangelicals who are much more focused on what we would call kind of the classic moral issues like abortion and homosexuality, younger evangelicals are much more likely to say they're concerned about a wider range of issues. And this seems like, and many people have read this as an opportunity for the Democratic Party, and in some sense it probably is. On the other hand, when you look at their views – Their views on homosexuality are distinctly more liberal than those of their elder counterparts. Their views on abortion, in most studies, are 
actually more conservative than their elder counterparts, which is interesting and something that's often not reported. So when you look at the data of younger evangelicals, and it's hard because there aren't very many studies because it's very, very hard to get a large population of people, let's say 18 to 30, to answer your questions, to to get the data collection like you need. It's a very expensive and difficult project. So we don't have a lot of these studies. But Pew and a few others have done these studies. And what we see is in my mind at least a mixed result, that it's not a story of, well, they're just as Republican as they used to be, or a story of they're becoming more like Democrats. So it's not reported particularly well because the data are somewhat ambiguous or even just confusing. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and today we're having a conversation with Amy E. Black. She's Associate Professor of Political Science in the Department of Politics and International Relations at Wheaton College. We're doing this in the context of the Wheaton uh, the Wheaton co-sponsored event with the American Bible Society on the Bible and democracy in America that's taking place here on the Wheaton campus. So when we look at this echo chamber effect, when we look at, at the way in which um, – you know, people are getting the reinforcement of an identity from these various types of media. One of the things that that I'm always struck by, even when I go on on websites that are faith based, is the the anger and the lack of hospitality that you see in the comment feeds. <laughs> and I wonder if 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 that's a a piece of of what you're talking about as well. Absolutely. So. Lack of hospitality is a very kind word for what I would say. I think anger and to some extent vitriol. It's, it's amazing to me the kinds of things that people will say in comments on online posts on and blog posts, those kinds of things. So, so indeed, it is a problem. So, again, if we're in an echo chamber, if obviously our view is right and no one who disagrees with us could be of right mind – then you autom- the the view that you have of those who don't share your views is is so low and and so demeaned and so part of the problem is that we can't even imagine how someone could disagree with us no reasonable person could disagree with my views on this i know i'm right at the faith based element I know I'm right and God is on my side. Mm. I I know this is true and God says this is true. The Bible says this is true. Anyone who disagrees with me is not only misinformed and irrational, but they may also be on the side of Satan. Now, that may sound like a little bit extreme the way I characterize it, but the disturbing part to me is that some people do really believe this. Uh, Just as an example... A couple of years ago, our department and a few other departments on campus hosted a debate, and one of the participants in that debate was Jim Wallace of Sojourners. Someone called into our department. The office coordinator answered the phone, and this person just began to tell her what horrible, awful people we were at Wheaton because we were we had invited Jim Wallace to campus. Of course, not even thinking about that it's in a conversation of a debate, so it's him and someone else, not at all thinking of him clearly as a fellow believer in Christ, and said, it seems to me that you are now on Team Satan. So that's the kind of rhetoric that becomes far too commonplace, and I find it really sad and really disturbing, particularly from people of faith. Because it's almost as if we forget that our Christian witness is part of our everyday lives and who we are, how we comport ourselves, how we treat other people. We're supposed to be loving our neighbors all the time. We're supposed to be loving God all the time, not just when it's convenient. And so when people 
read someone making this horrible flaming, these horrible flaming comments online, um, perhaps using really inappropriate language, perhaps just saying terrible, awful things that no one would ever dream of saying to someone's face because it would be so completely inappropriate, and then labeling themselves as a believer as they're saying this. This, to me, is offensive to the gospel. As Christians, we need to really step back and say, I'm an ambassador for Christ. I want to bring my faith to bear in everything, and I need to start with my own character, and I need to think about how I say things, how I treat others, and I need to be more Christ-like in my character, and I need a reality check when I look at the things that I say, the things that I write, the things that I post. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're reporting uh, and doing this interview in the context of the Bible and Democracy in America conference that's occurring at Wheaton College, and our guest today is Amy E. Black. She's an associate professor of political science in the Department of Politics and International Relations here at Wheaton College. And we're talking about the experience of uh, the uh, the political life of America, uh, influenced by the rise of the rise of social media, and particularly in the context of, of American religious faith. That sort of gestures towards your most recent book, uh, which is entitled Honoring God in Red or Blue, Approaching Politics with Humility, Grace, and Reason. And it seems to me that uh, that what you've just spoken for, the, the sort of need for a true Christian formation of character in one's political identity, that seems sorely lacking. Um, and it's lacking, if I, if I may, in sort of strange ways on both sides of the political divide. If we, if we take sort of Republicans and Democrats – in some ways, the Democratic Party has, um, even though there are people of faith who are still part of the Democratic Party, they they have, uh, in terms of the, the cultural perception, sort of abandoned God language. Right. And and I think that's part of their their desire to be a big tent and to have a broad spectrum. They end up including a lot of people that are not uh, sort of lockstep sort of evangelical Christian. Sure. At the same time, when we look at the when we look at the, the political right and we look at the Republican Party, in some ways they sort of consider themselves to be God's party, but you, you also have the kind of venal, greed driven capitalism of the financial conservatism happening as well. And and so you've got these odd mixtures on both sides where right. yeah. On both sides. And it's it's interesting because what we're seeing too is that I think both parties are realizing they probably need to change their rhetoric a bit. So when when we look at survey data, back to the survey data we were talking about earlier, the biggest gap that we see in voting behavior right now among, at least among white Americans, is what we often call the God gap. The difference between those who believe in God, practice their faith, are so regularly attend religious services, be it at a mosque, at a church, at a synagogue, and those who profess to have no belief in God, those who say, I never attend religious services. So the media came up with that term, the God gap, because it's kind of a nice little sort of catchy phrase. But the idea is that those who are the most devoted religious adherents are most likely to vote Republican. By no means all, but usually about three quarters, which is a big number. And those who are avowedly secular in their outlook are much more likely to vote Democratic. Numbers, again, vary, but usually about 80%. So there's this idea in the Democratic Party, we need to reach out to those secular voters. We don't want to talk too much about that. That God talk may turn them off. 
at the same time, the Republican Party says, well, we know that that sort of these these religious adherents are really important part of our party. Both parties realize that those are key groups, but those are not the only groups. There are many committed religious believers in the Democratic Party, just as there are atheists and everything, you know, everything on the spectrum in the Republican Party. In recent elections, the Democrats, I think, have, have gotten a little bit better at reaching across that God gap and saying, we're going to talk more about religion. And we saw that in the 2012 election and also in the 2008 election. And interesting, the party that we think of, sort of the quote, God's own party is kind of a joke about GOP, much more reticence, particularly in the presidential election, to talk about religion, maybe not quite so sure about how to work with this Part of that may have been the effect of having Romney at the top of the ticket and concerns about to what extent would Mormonism create problems within a Republican constituency. But we've seen both parties thinking about these data, trying to figure out how much should we reach out to religious voters, how much should we reach out to secular voters. And I think the Democrats have done a probably a better job in recent years of, of trying to smooth over of, of trying to smooth over that gap. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest is Wheaton College professor Amy Black. Dr. Black is associate professor of political science. You can find out more about Amy Black and her work at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest is Wheaton College professor Amy Black. Dr. Black is Associate Professor of Political Science. Her most recent book is Honoring God in Red or Blue, Approaching Politics with Humility, Grace, and Reason from Moody Publishers. You can find out more about Amy Black and her work at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. As you look at your career and as you think about your role as a teacher, what gives you the most hope as you look at the American political landscape and well, let's 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 flip that over. What what causes you the most panic and dread as you look at the political <laughs> landscape, and then and then what gives you the most hope? Yeah, that's that's a, I like that order. Panic and dread. There are lots of things that do cause me panic and dread. We've talked about some of that in our in our conversation here today. I I am very discouraged. That's not even strong enough word. I am deeply deeply saddened by the state of political discourse in so many venues, by the, just the hatred, the vitriol, the way that people are, are not just disrespectful, but outright inappropriate, mean, slandering. It just doesn't matter. And it's, it's happening on the right and the left. This is not something that either party can claim as its own. But there's kind of this sense of lack of respect for elected officials, lack of respect for other voters, lack of respect really for anyone but me, myself, and my perfect views. That kind of dogmatism and that kind of animosity, it just animates so much of American politics, and that makes me deeply, deeply troubled for the future of our democracy. At the same time, I have a lot of hope, and I am, I am the sort of the cheery optimist type, and I think the thing that probably gives me the most hope, and this, of course, comes from someone who works with undergraduates all the time, it may sound trite, but it really is my students. And I am encouraged by a number of my students who, you know, obviously there's lots of reasons to be a political science major, and there are many different careers, and our students go into many different careers. But I have some who are clearly embarking on a path that they see themselves or hope to be future legislators, you know, future governors, that kind of thing. And 
been a few in the past, we have to say, that I think, oh, my, I would never vote for them if there were no one else on the ballot. But most of my students, and I'd say this from students from, from actually from different ideological perspectives, I think, you know, here are some young men and women who are are truly trying to live out their faith in amazing ways, who are men and women of of good character, who care about this country, who care about the American people, who want to make a positive difference, and in whom I would be willing to place my trust. So that gives me hope that I see see some really wonderful young men and women coming up who I think have the opportunity to maybe change the direction of what's going on in American politics. Well, Professor Amy Black, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a joy to talk to you. It's been great to be with you, David. Professor Amy E. Black is Associate Professor of Political Science in the Department of Politics and International Relations at Wheaton College. As I mentioned, this is part of a series of interviews that I conducted at the Bible and Democracy in America conference held last October at Wheaton College and co-sponsored by the American Bible Society. You can find out more about the conference and the work of the American Bible Society at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. If you're on Twitter, take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. If you want to keep up with me and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following at Dalt Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And one more plug. If you haven't discovered our daily Religion Moments podcast yet, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin, finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. Seriously, they're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. And even better, we have all of them archived on our website. So if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on a thing. You can go back and explore the whole shebang, just like you were traveling back in time. After the break, we feature a piece produced by our friends in the United Kingdom, the Things Unseen podcast. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. A few months ago, I mentioned that there was a new podcast starting up in the United Kingdom called Things Unseen. They also were looking at faith and culture issues, and their staff featured a really amazing assortment of producers, folks who had worked for the BBC and in other parts of British broadcasting. Though Things Not Seen and Things Unseen are not technically sister shows, we are what you might call a mutual admiration society. We tweet about each other's content, and we've agreed that from time to time we'll share each other's material on our respective shows. And so it's a real treat for me today to bring you this great piece that Things Unseen did back in November called Jesus the Muslim. The piece is produced by Vicki Beeching, a well-known and well-respected commentator in British broadcasting and a frequent contributor to The Guardian newspaper. She's an Oxford-educated theologian who specializes in the areas of religion, ethics, and technology. Her guest is Cambridge scholar Tim Winter, also known as Sheikh Abdal Hakim Murad, who was once named by an institute in Jordan as one of the world's most influential Muslims. We hope that you enjoy the piece. How familiar are you with the story of the birth of Jesus? Not the one about Bethlehem and the stable, with Joseph, the shepherds, and angels in attendance, but the one that has his mother, Mariam, giving birth to him under a palm tree and the baby speaking up miraculously to vouch for her chastity. 
If you're a Christian, this version of events probably sounds quite strange to you, and that's because it's the Islamic narrative of Jesus' birth. Christians tend to think of Jesus as entirely theirs, but the truth is he plays an important role for Muslims too, though they view his life and significance differently. I'm Vicky Beeching, and you're listening to Things Unseen, the programme for people of all faiths and none who want to explore questions of spirituality. To discover more about Jesus through Muslim eyes, I'm joined by Tim Winter, who's been called one of the world's most influential Muslims. Tim is a lecturer in Islamic studies at the University of Cambridge. Tim, welcome. Hello. We've called this edition of the programme Jesus the Muslim. Now, for anyone who knows how world religions unfolded chronologically, this may sound a bit strange, as Islam came hundreds of years after Christianity. But in what sense is that title true? Well, of course, the word Muslim simply means somebody who's doing Islam, which uh, ultimately in the Arabic language just means somebody who submits to God. So to call Jesus a Muslim is not, say, for an Arabic speaker uh, who is also a Christian particularly offensive. Every religious person who believes in God seeks to submit to God. And the character of Jesus, I guess in the Gospels as well as in the Quran, is certainly somebody who is completely in obedience and submissive to the will of his father. Jesus is seen as a prophet within Islam, yet he occupies quite a different position from the one he holds in Christianity. Can you briefly take us through those main differences? Well, Jesus is a prophet, but one of the great prophets. Muslims believe he's one of the four greatest prophets that have ever lived, and significant in that he receives a scripture, which most prophets don't. The scripture being identified by most Muslims with a kind of original scripture of which the current four Gospels, which are in Christian hands today, are a kind of somewhat inaccurate memory. So he brings a scripture, but he's not just a prophet because he also has this gigantically important eschatological role, that is to say at the end of time he actually appears again. So it's familiar, but obviously the Muslim appropriation of Jesus turns him into a a subtly different figure. In the Christian faith, there's a very strong sense of the Trinitarian aspect of God, Jesus being God's Son, you know, God the Father, God the Spirit. That's uh, not something contained within the Islamic faith, is it? No, if you look at the actually quite extensive Quranic treatment of Jesus and also of his mother, you can see that it's a, a showcase for the Quranic style of subtly rejigging a narrative that on the surface seems very familiar, but actually is, is doing very different theological work. So Jesus certainly seen as an ascetical type of figure, somebody who renounces the world, who doesn't marry, who doesn't have children, who doesn't touch the money or the assets or the sort of financial charms of what was quite a mercantile civilization who drives the money changes out of the temple with a whip of cord, quite a militant zealot figure, in fact, but somebody who was ultimately human. So one of the culminating points in the Quranic narrative of Jesus is where his mother has given birth to him on her own in the desert, and she brings the newborn into the city of Jerusalem, and the first thing that Jesus says, and this is his first ever miracle, he actually preaches in his mother's arms, is that, I am God's slave. And that is, as it were, the Quran putting into the mouth of the infant Jesus its basic Christology. That is to say that he believed that he was the slave, the servant, the creature of his father, that he wasn't equal to his father, that he wasn't 
divine. So Muslims have always been deeply troubled by the subsequent evolutions in Christian theology, which spoke of a God who was one in three persons, holding that this was probably not the actual historical belief of Jesus himself and is a, essentially a Greek importation that has no place in a monotheistic Semitic culture of revelation. In the Islamic faith, Jesus is not believed to have died on the cross and risen from the dead. No, the Quran has this, to many, frustratingly brief account of the end of Jesus's earthly ministry. You just get a single verse in the Quran, and it's not even anywhere in the Prophet's teachings, which are actually more extensive than the Quran, it's just this one nugget in the entire ocean of Muslim scriptural memory which says, presumably of the Jews, they did not kill him, they did not crucify him, but it was made to appear so unto them, full stop. And that, as you can imagine, has triggered a whole torrent of rival interpretations. What's clear is that the Jews are being exonerated. They didn't kill him. But could it mean that actually he was killed because the Romans killed him? Or does it mean that he wasn't killed at all and was somehow saved from the crucifixion and there are many subsequent Muslim narratives that hold almost in the kind of Da Vinci Code style that he was drugged on the cross but taken down when the Romans thought he was dead and then made good his escape in the dead of night from the cave. Those narratives are present in medieval Muslim speculation. Others would say that another individual, perhaps Judas Iscariot, was miraculously transfigured as a kind of divine punishment for his attempted treason and was grabbed by the Roman legionnaires and crucified in Jesus' stead while Jesus again made good his escape. So the Muslim imagination has been quite busy in determining what this verse could actually mean. But what I think is most important about that sequence is that the meaning of the crucifixion for most Christians is being denied. Here you have the Quran's rhetorical way, I think, of emphasizing that God doesn't need a cosmic sacrifice in order to bring humanity back to himself. This idea of a punitive, vicarious atonement, a blood sacrifice, seems to the Muslim imagination rather unworthy of a God of compassion, and that it's not necessary for God to bring about the torturing in this horrible way of his only son before he can accept human repentance. So what do Muslims believe happened to Jesus at the end of his life? Well, again, that's a big enigma, and there is a, an enormous effusion of legend and mythology. The understanding is, as the Quran says, God made him ascend to him. So there is an idea of an ascension, a bodily ascension, presumably, however difficult it might be for us with our modern astronomical knowledge to get our heads around exactly the mechanics of that. But the traditional Muslim belief, he ascended bodily into heaven and he is waiting for the end of time when he will return to earth and establish justice and compassion. But exactly what kind of sort of spiritual condition he's in at the moment boggles the imagination and most of our theologians have not wanted to go there. On the other hand, there are similarities. As we mentioned before, Muslims do have their own beautiful narrative of the birth of Jesus, although it's quite different from that of the Gospels. There are certain parallels with certain very early Christian texts that didn't make it into the final text of the New Testament. Again, you have to remember that all of this is kind of polemic. It's making a religious point. So there's this ambiguity. On the one hand, tremendous love and respect for an infallible prophet of God, born of a virgin. But on the other hand, we have the need to distance Islam from Christianity and to explain where the early Christians went wrong. There's no three wise men. There's no following a star. There's no baby in a manger. All of those traditional stories. 
Instead, what we get is the Virgin Mary is visited by a figure who is identified with the angel Gabriel, the angel of Revelation, and is given the news by the angel of a pure son. And when her term comes nigh, she goes off apparently into a place in the wilderness to the east of Jerusalem. What we get is this rather poignant image of probably teenage single mother in a scandalous situation, pregnant in a society that had no time for unmarried mothers, on her own, in the desert, and she's underneath a dead palm tree. She gives birth, and then a voice appears. We're not told whether it's God's voice or the angel's voice. It's just a voice telling her to shake the palm tree. Now, the sort of rhetorical force of that in the narrative is a woman's just given birth and the palm tree is dead anyway, but she's obedient. And so she takes the trunk of the palm tree and shakes it and fresh dates fall down on her. And then she's told to scuff the ground with her foot and a spring suddenly appears. And so she's nourished in the desert. And then she's given the presumably rather unwelcome news that she has to take a vow of silence. She can't tell anybody what's happened. And she has to go back into the city of Jerusalem to face the music with uh, apparently illegitimate baby in her arms. So she goes back to confront the scribes and the Pharisees with the baby in her arms. But what she does is for Asharat Ilay, the Quranic text says, so she points towards the child. The scribes and the Pharisees have said, how can you come up with this abomination? Your father was not a bad man and your mother was not a harlot. What is this? She can't reply. For Asharat Ilay, so she points, but maybe not the child. And they're even more aghast, and they say, How can we speak to a babe in arms? And then, of course, at the moment of her apparent greatest humiliation and weakness, the baby speaks and starts to sermonize in beautiful classical Arabic and says, Inni Abdullah, I am God's slave. Atani al-Kitab, he's given me the book. Waja'alani nabiyya, and has made me a prophet. Waja'alani mubarakan, aina ma kunt, and has made me blessed wherever I may be. And you've got this beautiful Islamic sermon coming from this neonatal infant. And of course the scribes and the Pharisees are completely blown away. She is vindicated, and the first point of the Quranic Christology, the Quran's theology of the nature of Jesus is made. It is an amazing story. Does Joseph feature at all? Not in the Quran. He's airbrushed out of it. He's briefly referred to in some early Muslim legendary accounts, but the focus is very much on Mary. In many ways, the nativity is more about her than it is about Jesus. In the Gospel accounts, Mary is a kind of prologue to the real business of God incarnate. For Muslims, Jesus is not God incarnate. He's another prophet, another perfected human being. So the emphasis shifts subtly back to the person of Mary. And it's interesting to observe a lot of modern Muslims who are interested in gender issues, role models, ideal types. A lot of feminist Muslims, for instance, are trying to reclaim their status in Islam by pointing to the figure of the Virgin Mary. Because after all, what is she? She's the one who the patriarchy rejects. She's sent out into the desert. She's the single mother. She's scandalous. She's apparently committed adultery. But she's the one who the angel speaks to, and she's the one who is vindicated over and against the adherence of a strict legalistic outward type of religion. Muslims do believe that Jesus will return to earth at the end of time. Can you tell us a little bit about how that's seen in Islam? 
The Quranic reference to this is clear, but it's rather succinct. But there are a number of hadiths in which the Prophet of Islam is saying, how will you be when Jesus, son of Mary, returns? And you know, Are you ready for it? Are you ready for the second coming? It's a little bit like some of those, are you ready for Jesus bumper stickers that you see in the Bible belts in America. The same thing is, is there in Islam, the same kind of millennial expectation. Probably stressed a little bit less amongst Muslims than amongst Christians. The belief is that he reappears descending from heaven onto the white minaret of the great mosque in Damascus, and it's still called the Jesus Minaret to this day, and then will defeat the Antichrist, who is the kind of demonic inversion of the qualities of good, apparently in, in the context of a great battle. It's the kind of Armageddon-type scenario, although that word is, is not present. And then rules, some would say for seven years, some would say for 40 years, but it's a little bit hazy. It's not regarded as part of necessary Muslim belief to know exactly what you should put in your diary for when Jesus comes. It's kind of a hope. It's an eschatological hope. No doubt that hope has given a lot of ordinary believers tremendous solace in times of catastrophe, that things will be better, there will be light at the end of the tunnel. And then he dies and is buried beside the prophet in Medina in the grave that's already been made ready for him and then there will be a sudden nosedive in human moral and spiritual capabilities so that people will just be living like animals following their own pleasures and greed and extreme disparities of rich and poor various forms of cosmological or environmental instability and then the angel Seraphiel will blow his horn and that will be game over as it were and the day of judgment will begin you touched earlier on the fact that Muslims would see a lot of the early Christian teachings as quite unreliable. Obviously, the four Gospels are really paramount to the Christian faith. How does that relationship work between the Quran and the four Gospels? It's ambiguous. On the one hand, Jesus clearly bears a scripture. He has a book with him, which is called Injil, which is obviously related to the Greek Evangelion, which means gospel. It's the same idea. But that's actually not what most Christians understand. They don't believe that Jesus brought a book. Church fathers such as St. John Chrysostom said, our Saviour did not bring a book. He was himself the revelation. So the Gospels are a commentary on the real Logos, which is Jesus himself, the real word. The Muslim understanding is that Jesus did bring a scripture or a book, which was subsequently in the confusion following the disappearance of Jesus on earth and the dispersal of the early church that was not conserved. So Muslims have a kind of ambiguous relationship to the existing Christian scriptures, pointing out that they were written by basically unknown hands some decades after the events which they purport to describe, that there are internal tensions, shall we say, between the four gospel narratives, and hence the four gospels that we have today are not regarded as scriptural or authoritative by Muslims. You didn't grow up in a Muslim family, but you embraced Islam as a young man. Tell me a bit about your journey of faith and how you came to see Jesus through Muslim eyes. I was at a tremendously posh school which was very achievement-oriented and musings about God or metaphysics of any kind were not exactly encouraged by the headmaster. However, we did have a very interesting chaplain who would regularly press us so that we in our vague teenage way would be forced to articulate what we did or did not believe. But he made it very clear that the doctrine of the Trinity, which we asked about because it was in the prayers we had to attend, probably this wasn't the belief of the early church. It was a valid evolution in the third and the fourth century based on certain clues present in the Gospels. But Jesus himself, his disciples and the first Christians didn't believe in the Trinity. 
and it took centuries before the final creedal formulations which Christians today abide by were made, the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Chalcedon, Council of Constantinople. So that it struck me that really if you're going to follow a religious founder, you ought to stick with what he himself believed rather than with what a bunch of Greek bishops 300 years later thought he would have preached if only he'd got around to it. So that triggered a journey of discovery. I was always very challenged by the person of Jesus. I didn't like what I took to be the blackmailing logic of, I have suffered so much for you, so you ought to accept me, which I thought was manipulative. But certainly the figure presented in the Synoptic Gospels, the Jesus of the Parables, is an unbesmirchable, miraculous image, which I didn't want to let go of. This was the 70s. Many of my contemporaries were heading east to discover Buddhism and other exotic paths. I was not interested in that. I knew that the person of Jesus would always be very important to me. But I also knew that I wanted to know what he believed, what he took himself to be, and to find some form of worship and way of life that was similar to the way he himself lived. And Islam did sort of leap out of the pages of the comparative religion books very, very conspicuously, even though I'd had no exposure to it. I didn't meet a single Muslim before I decided I wanted to convert. It was a process of mental conviction. And Islam seemed to press all of the right buttons. Here you have the belief in the God of Abraham, which obviously was not a Trinitarian God, the God of Moses, the God of that beautiful narrative of the biblical story, and the God of Jesus, but without those metaphysical complications that then crept in that really veiled Jesus. The greatness of the Jesus of the Gospels is that you can relate to him as a vulnerable human being in Gethsemane. He's kind of frightened. He doesn't know what to do. He's asking the Father for help. He says, my Father is greater than I. He's growing in obedience. He has these moments when he's tempted. I thought that that could not be squared with the idea that he's also the omnipotent creator of heaven and earth. That didn't work for me. I like to see him as a purely human individual, and that's exactly what the Quran gives you. Did you feel like you had to unlearn quite a lot of your previous perceptions about Jesus from the you know, Western view that you grew up with? Well, the pretty stories are part of our upbringing and earliest memories, sort of once in Royal David City and so forth. That's there in the blood. But that's not the essence of the story or the theology. I had never bought into the idea of a cosmic sacrifice. I had always been brought up to believe in a loving God who could forgive people directly. And that strikes me as the beauty of, say, the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal messes up and becomes a swineherd and destroys his inheritance, but then he comes back and the father welcomes him. And that's Jesus' own teaching of how human beings are justified and return to God. There's no sign of a cosmic sacrifice or part of God or God or the Son of God descending into our earthly sphere and suffering because we're too wicked to be accepted. Instead, in the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus is telling us, God will embrace you directly once you open your heart and return to him. I'd always believed that. So what do you think Christians can learn from the Muslim perspective on Jesus they might miss within their own faith tradition? When I speak to Americans of an evangelical perspective, I remind them that Christians as well as Muslims believe very strongly in Jesus as being somebody who is not of this world, who turned his back on worldly pleasures. I think it would not have been at ease with the modern lifestyle which many modern evangelicals seem to have taken upon themselves which is one of making huge pots of money and building mega churches and driving smart cars and online ministries and that world of Christian capitalism I think is a betrayal of what Jesus actually taught and I think Muslims and I'm sure many Christians would regard that as something that has to be stopped in its tracks. 
What do you think about the other way around? What can Muslims learn from the Christian perspective of Jesus, if anything? One of the things that I do every year is to take a group of trainee imams to the Vatican. And we stay in a monastery and we engage with the theologians and the monks and the nuns. And I think that what they find most moving is the idea of a collective lifestyle lived in a spirit of radical renunciation. A lot of Muslims nowadays tend to be a little bit comfortable in their lifestyles, particularly those who have migrated to the West, usually not for the propagation of the true faith, but in order to make a better income. And I think that the very impressive witness of Christians who have dedicated themselves to a monastic calling, following the footsteps of Jesus himself, who lived without property, is something that can help to soften a lot of Muslim hearts and something that I urge my Muslim seminarians to take very seriously. What would you say as a final thought, what Jesus means to you? Jesus means to me the ongoing recurrent love of God and his desire that all should be saved. He has not disclosed himself perfectly only once in history, but again and again and again. He disclosed himself perfectly with Moses, with Isaiah, with Abraham, with Joseph, with Jacob, with Jesus and with Muhammad. It's an unfolding story, but the salvation given at each point was true salvation. People were saved at each of those moments. So he is part of that great story. But he comes again at the end of time and gives me, and I'm sure millions of Christians as well as Muslims, tremendous hope that despite there are the dark times in which we're currently living, the clash of civilizations, environmental degradation, unnerving things being done by geneticists, that all will be well in the end and that Jesus will be the one who opens the gates to a better way of being human. Tim Winter, many thanks for joining us today. I'm Vicky Beeching, and you've been listening to Things Unseen, the programme for people of all faiths and none who think there's more to life than the material world. Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC. Vicky Beeching is an Oxford-educated theologian, writer and broadcaster, specialising in the areas of religion, ethics and technology. She is based in London. You can hear more pieces from Things Unseen at their website, thingsunseen.co.uk. We'll also have a link to our website at thingsnotseenradio.com. Seriously, these guys are producing some amazing stuff, and if you're interested in religion, you should be listening. Things Not Seen is a production of Sandberg Media, LLC. Today's show was recorded at WETN on the campus of Wheaton College. WETN is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place in the United Kingdom and at our studios here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. David Dalt engineered the show. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Alexander Badenoch, and Kim Tron. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, and send us an email or hear about extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.